Well, uh, good morning, everybody. I don't know about you, but I really fancy a curry right about now. That would go down nicely. Wet my appetite there, Pastor Phil. Uh, well, in Counter Church, um, I, I come bearing good news this morning. And the good news is this rejoice and be glad. I have for you this morning not one, but two sermons. Such an appetite in the house for the Word of God. <laughs> Some people got up and left just then. I just saw it, uh, saw it in the back. Uh, and the reason I have two, two don't worry, they're two relatively short ones. The, the reason I have two uh, sermons for you this morning is because today I want to talk to you about generations. So my second uh, sermon uh, this morning will be for those of us who are perhaps uh, part of a youth group, maybe we're students, we're, we're studying, we would consider ourselves on the younger uh, side. Uh, and my first sermon this morning will be for those of us who, I'm not quite sure what words to use at this point, would not consider ourselves <laughs> to be on the younger side. So to, to, to get us thinking generationally, I came across recently a bit of interesting research that's been conducted by Airbnb, right? And they set out to discover the age at which you officially become boring. <laughs> Church, I need to tell you this morning, it's not good news, okay? It's not good news. Now, before revealing the magic number to you, the age at which you officially become boring, uh, let me share with you the 10 metrics that Airbnb used to uh, decipher whether or not you are boring so that you can do a little bit of self-assessment this morning, all right? You can, uh, you can reflect and use them as a personal checklist either way as we go. Okay, so according to Air... Now, don't shoot the messenger... I'm just passing on the information. According to Airbnb, the uh, people who are officially boring are less likely to, number one, stay out until the early hours on a weekday. Not looking good, guys, is it? Number two, try a new hobby. Three, go out of their way to make a new friend. Four, book a spontaneous holiday. Five, learn a new skill. Six, visit a friend unannounced. Seven, change jobs. Eight, go on a spontaneous shopping trip. Nine, ask someone out. Or ten, try a new sport. Now, out of interest, Encounter Church, based on those metrics, how many of us would self-diagnose as boring this morning? Yeah, a few hands. Was, yes, definitely. I'm definitely, surprisingly few, actually. It's obviously a very exciting church, Pastor Bill. You're all out on a Tuesday, aren't you? I know it. I knew it. I could tell from looking at you guys. Okay, so here it is. The official, the official age, the official age that Airbnb concluded that we become boring is... 39 for men and just 35 for women. Don't shoot the messenger. <laughs> However, listen, listen, it's not, it's not all bad news because the same research found that those over the age of 50, give me a wave if you like Bob or over the age of 50 this morning, okay, those of us over the age of 50 were 22% more likely to book a spontaneous holiday than people in their 30s and 11% more likely to pay for an expensive meal out. So the moral of the story 
it seems to me, is that you can avoid becoming officially boring as long as you've got lots of cash, okay? So that's, <laughs> that's what we learn. Right, now that I've uh, successfully offended everyone over the age of uh, 35, uh, let's open our Bibles together, shall we, as we think about generations. And we're going to read uh, from the book of Two Kings. So if you've got a Bible, would you uh, turn to it or turn it on, uh, depending which kind of Bible you've got. We're going to read from Two Kings chapter 2 and the story of Elijah and Elisha. Now, For those unfamiliar with the story, Elijah was a great prophet. He lived around 900 BC, and he was known for the incredible signs and wonders that God performed through his ministry. And Elisha, well, Elisha was his his protege, his uh, apprentice, his uh, disciple, his successor in training who would follow in Elijah's footsteps and likewise uh, go on to become a great prophet and see God do amazing things through his life. So first up for sermon number one, (laughs) I want to speak to the Elijahs in the room and ask the question, guys, how are we going to raise up a new generation of Elishas to be God's representatives in their world? To see God do amazing things in their time and through their lives. How, how will we, like Elijah, pass on the baton in such a way that our ceilings become their floors? And, and to see this generation now rise up to see God do even greater things in their lives than we have ever seen in ours. And to answer that question... Let's, let's read from 2 Kings chapter 2. Before we do that, uh, why, don't, why don't we pray together? <sighs> Heavenly Father, we thank you for the outrageous privilege of being able to hold the Scripture, these God-breathed words of truth in our hands. And I pray that as we open them together uh, th- this morning, that you would reveal something through uh, these precious words that perhaps we've never seen before, that you would show us something of yourself, that you would challenge us and that you would encourage us and you would inspire us by the power of your Holy Spirit through the pages of your Holy Scriptures. Our hearts are open, our minds are open. We fix our attention upon you, Lord God. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, 2 Kings chapter 2 and verse 1. When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, the Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha said, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. The company of the prophets at Bethel came out to Elisha and asked, Do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, Elisha replied. So be quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, Elisha, the Lord has sent me to Jericho. And he replied, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. And so they went to Jericho. 
The company of the prophets at Jericho went up to Elisha and asked him, Do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, he replied. So, be quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, the Lord has sent me to Jordan. And he replied, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. And so the two of them walked on. Fifty men from the company of the prophets went and stood at a distance facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the Jordan. Elijah, now remember this because we're going to come back to it. Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up and struck the water with it. The water divided to the right and to the left, and the two of them crossed over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me, what can I do for you before I'm taken from you? Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. Spirit. Now let's just pause there in the story before we read on to understand that when Elisha asks Elijah for a double portion of his spirit, he's not asking for twice as much or for a ministry twice as great as Elijah's. What he's doing is he's invoking a term from ancient inheritance law to express his desire to carry on Elijah's mantle. He wants to to carry what he carried. He wants to take on his ministry. But most importantly, what we should understand from the text this morning was that Elisha wasn't asking for information. He was seeking an impartation. Let's read on. Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. You've asked for a difficult thing, Elijah said. Yeah, if you see me, When I'm taken from you, it will be yours. Otherwise, it will not. And as they were walking along, talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and of horses appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and the horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. And then he took his garment and he tore it in two. Elisha then picked up Elijah's cloak that had fallen from him and went back and stood at the bank of the Jordan. He took the cloak that had fallen from Elijah and struck, sound familiar? The water with it. Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah, he asked. And when he struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left. And he crossed over. The company of the prophets from Jericho who were watching said, the spirit of Elijah is resting on Elisha. The spirit of Elijah is resting on Elisha. So what does all of this tell us about what it means to raise up a new generation of Elishas? Well, primarily, it tells us this. That there's something more important than what we teach, and it's what we impart. And what we impart to the next generation is about much more than what we communicate. It's about what we carry. Now, what, what do I mean by that? I believe 
that what we're carrying, what you are carrying within you is about much more than what you have learned. It's about what God has placed deep within you through the experience of your life, through the journey that he has taken you on. So what you're carrying then isn't just about knowledge. It's not just something that you understand. It's about character. It's about values. It's about principles that have become so deeply embedded into your heart that they have become part of who you are. And you see, you can communicate what you know, but you impart what you carry. And Elisha, he wasn't seeking information from Elijah. He was seeking an impartation. He wanted to carry what he carried. And we see, don't we, in verse 15, that the company of the prophets noticed that the spirit of Elijah was resting on Elisha, that there had been this impartation. Elisha had caught what Elijah was carrying. And so, to the older generations in this church, you know, the boring ones over the age of 35... I want to ask you a, 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 a provoking question this morning. And the question is this. If the younger generations in this church were to inherit a double portion of your spirit, would that be a good thing? If they were to worship Jesus as you worship Jesus, would that be a good thing? If, where they, if they were to pray, I know you've been talking about prayer over in recent weeks here. If they were to pray as you pray, would that be a good thing? If they were to serve as you serve and love as you love, would that be a good thing? If when they uh, got married, they were to treat their spouse as you treat their spouse, would that be a good thing? If they were to manage their finances, if they were to watch what you watch or scroll what, through what you scroll through or click on what you click on, Would that be a good thing? If they were to inherit a double portion of your spirit, guys, would that be a good thing? And so, church, the the big question that I want to leave ringing in your ears today is simply this. Are you living up to what you want to pass down? Are you living up to what you want to pass down? See, the best gift, I believe that the best gift that you have to give to the young people in this church is not a fantastic youth ministry, though that's important, of course. No, the best gift that you can give is a model of the person you are praying they will become. The best, you, the best gift you can give them is not great teaching that's worth hearing. It's a walk with Jesus that's worth having. You know, one young person said it like this. She's called Emma. She said, I want you to be someone that I want to grow up like. <laughs> I want you to step up and live by the Bible's standards. I want you to be inexplicably generous and unbelievably faithful and radically committed. I want you to be a noticeably better person than my humanist teacher <laughs> or my atheist doctor or my Hindu next door neighbor. I want you to sell what you have and give to the poor. I want you not to worry about your health like you're afraid of dying. I want you to live like you actually believe in the God that you preach about. Listen to this. I don't want you to be like me. I want you to be like Jesus, she says. And that's when I'll start listening. 
Guys, are we living up to what we want to pass down? And, and this, this is how our ceilings become their flaws. Did you notice that the very first thing that Elisha did in his ministry, the very first thing was to walk up to the water and strike it with the cloak and see those seas part. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't quite have that kind of audacious faith. Like, I've never tried that. Like, I, I don't quite have the shameless audacity or the courageous faith to, to even have a framework in my thinking that I could walk up to the water and see it part. So why would Elisha have such audacity? Why would Elisha have such courageous faith? Why would Elisha, at the starting point of his ministry, try something so impossible? I'll tell you why. Because he'd seen Elijah do it. Because he'd seen Elijah do it. Do you see the point, the point where Elijah finished his ministry was the same point that Elisha began his. And so Elijah's ceiling had become Elisha's floor. Church, what kind of faith are we modeling for our young people? You know, my um, testimony, my story of faith goes a little something like this. Um, I was brought up in church. I gave my life to Jesus when I was seven years old, and now I'm here. <laughs> and it's a lot more complex than that, of course. And I made plenty of mistakes along the way, of course. But, you know, one thing that didn't happen in my life is I didn't have one of those periods, you know, maybe in my late teens or my early 20s where, where I, like, you know, like many of my friends did, like, like I turned away from God for a bit and then, and then came back to him later or didn't come back. That didn't happen to me. And I, I've often reflected on why was that? Like, what kept me, yes, plenty of mistakes, yes, plenty of foolishness, but what kept me fairly steady in my discipleship through those formative years as a teenager, as a young adult? And, you know, as I reflect on that, I just feel so grateful both to my parents and also to the church that I was brought up in. And here's why. Because for them, God wasn't somebody who used to move in power. He was someone who moved in power now. God wasn't someone who used to speak, he was somebody who speaks now. And so, you know, God wasn't someone who used to baptize people in his Holy Spirit. He was someone who baptized people in his Holy Spirit now. And so all, all, I, all I ever knew was to expect the power of God. All I ever knew was to expect the voice of God. I remember being prayed for as a child and, and being filled with the Holy Spirit. But you know what? More than that, I remember as a child praying for adults and seeing them filled with the Holy Spirit. But I didn't know anything different. This was the thing. And the point I'm trying to make here, guys, is it's not something they ever taught me. It's something they showed me. It's not something they communicated to me. It's something that I caught from them. I caught what they were carrying. They imparted it to me through who they were. And it reminds me of the Apostle Paul's words in 1 Corinthians. He says this. He says that my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. That's weird, isn't it? Because if, if anybody had ever had wise and persuasive words, surely it's Paul, right? He wrote kind of half the New Testament. His words are pretty wise and persuasive. But he says, no, my message and preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. They were with what? A demonstration of the Spirit's power. Why? 
so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. They modeled uh, for me a living, vibrant, uh, spirit-filled faith, and I inherited it. I caught it from them. So, Elijah's in the room. (laughs) What kind of faith are we modeling for these young people? How high are we setting the ceilings for the next generation to launch off? Do you know it's really interesting that in the scripture, there are seven recorded miracles of Elijah. Guess how many are recorded of Elisha? 14. (laughs) We want our ceilings, don't we, to become their floors. I love this thought from Erwin McManus. He says, if our children are going to walk away from Christ, we need to raise them in such a way that to walk away from Jesus is to walk away from a life of faith, risk, and adventure, and to choose a life that is boring, mundane, and ordinary. Church, are we living up? to what we want to pass down. That's the first sermon over with. (laughs) But what about the Elishas in the room, those not-so-boring people aged 34 (laughs) and below? Because I don't know about you, we we want to be Elishas, right? And we want to see God do amazing things in our time and through our lives. We want to see the Lord move in our schools and move in our colleges and move in our universities. We want the Lord to use us and... What comes to mind when we think of Elisha, or what comes to my mind when I think of Elisha, is all those amazing miracles. I think of the parting of the water, we just read it, the floating axe head. I I remember the multiplying of the oil, the boy that he raised from the dead. I remember Naaman, who was healed from leprosy after washing in the Jordan. And I think, yeah, come on, we want some of that. Like, give us some of that. And I want to say, I believe that for you. And I believe that's possible in your university. And I believe that's possible in your school or or, or wherever you are. And, and, And let's go for that. But you know what we don't tend to think about when we think of Elisha is how he got to all of that, how he got to the part in the story where we joined it today. Now, I was in a shop, um, and I saw this graphic plastered on the wall, um, and I took a photo of it, because it struck me as somewhat reflective of the world in which we are being formed. Grab it now. <laughs> Tomorrow, it might be gone forever. You, you should get it, like, now, don't worry if you could afford it. That's a secondary consideration because you deserve it instantly. You want information? Well, it's in your pocket. Communication, likewise. You want a movie? Stream it now. A TV show? Well, it's on demand. How about delivery? You could get it in three days for free, but that's too long to wait. Let's go prime and get it tomorrow. And the truth is, right, that we have known nothing other than instant everything, instant gratification, instant everything. And, you know, in many ways that's great because it's convenient, right? The danger is, though, for us, is that we can end up feeling entitled to influence on next day delivery. But Elisha's in the room. I want to tell you this morning that, like Elisha, you can't build a mantle in a moment, Because, you see, before this moment where we join the story, when Elisha took the mantle of Elijah, we read about when he first took, uh, he first started learning from Elijah back in 1 Kings chapter 19. And in the intervening four 
chapters, you know, Elisha's name is not mentioned again. Not one time. And for seven years, Elisha was just faithful. A long obedience in the same direction. Out of the spotlight, serving Elijah faithfully, consistently, humbly, learning, growing, following. And then, even when he eventually does show up again, as we've just seen in the story, we find him saying, no, like Elijah, I'm not going to leave you at Gilgal. I'm not going to give up at Bethel. I'm not going to back down at Jericho. And so what I want to say to the Elishas in the room that we can uh, uh, learn, from, uh, learn from Elisha today is this, that in the kingdom of God, long-term consistency trumps short-term intensity every single time. Every single time. You know, I believe that one of the great challenges we face in our formation into the likeness of Christ in the digital age it's, is that it's robbing us of the patience that we need to develop a robust and enduring faith. Because we simply cannot cultivate a rich spiritual life on 90-second reels, you know. Because things that last a long time, they take a long time. <laughs> and, and so we cannot expect God to use us miraculously if we are addicted to immediacy. If we really want to see the things that Elisha saw, then we need to do the things that Elisha did. We have to be willing to faithfully and consistently pursue Jesus where in the secret place, in the hidden place, in the unseen place. Because what happens in secret will become evident in public for better or for worse. What happens in the background is going to make its way into the foreground. It is the small choices that nobody sees that leads to the influence that everybody wants. So my friends, I just want to say to you this morning, faithfulness, faithfulness. It's not very sexy, is it? (laughs) Faithfulness. But I want to tell you, it's a precious and valuable currency in the kingdom of God. Mother Teresa said these words, small things are indeed small, but faithfulness in the small things is a great thing. And it reminds me of another duo in the scripture, uh, Paul and Timothy. You know then, Paul was the apostle, the church planter, the teacher. He met Timothy in Lystra when Timothy was just a a teenager. and, and, And just like Elijah did with Elisha. He invited him to come traveling with him. And they journeyed together, did Paul and Timothy. They went all over the place. They went to Achaia and to Macedonia. They went to Corinth. They went to Ephesus. They went to Galatia and Asia Minor. Guys, for 15 years, they traveled together. (laughs) And after 15 years, having finally now entrusted leadership of the church in Ephesus to Timothy, Paul wrote to him these words. Are you ready? Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but, oh, hang on a second, set an example. So it turns out it's not two sermons after all. It's just the one. It's the same message for us all. Elijah's, Elisha's, are we setting an example? Are we living up? to what we want to pass down. And so to the younger generations here in Encounter Church, I I, I just want to say to you, could you imagine for a moment what would happen in the life of this church? 
Could you imagine what might happen in your school or your college or your university, guys, if you were the ones setting an example for the believers in speech, not letting any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth? What if you were the ones setting an example in conduct that the people recognized you as different, not just because of what you believed, but because of how you behaved? What if you were the ones setting an example in love? What, you know, what if the students at university or the, or, or the young people at your school were like, man, I, there's something about that student group. Like, there's something about that youth group. I don't know what it is like, and I don't know if I believe what they believe. I'm pretty sure I don't. But there's something about the way they love one another that is so compelling. What, what if you were the ones, guys, what if you were the ones setting an example in this church in faith? What if you were the ones believing, yes, the waters can part. Yes, I can pray for the sick. Even uh, not just here in the building, but at, at school, at university. Guys, what if you were the ones setting an example in purity? <laughs> what if you were happy to let people look at your internet history? What if you were guarding your eyes, fixing your minds on whatever is true and and pure and praiseworthy? What if you were the ones setting an example? Could you imagine what the Lord might do through a generation like that? Could you imagine that? I'm pretty sure you'd be a generation of Elishas, right? People to whom God would entrust the mantle. People to whom God would entrust the influence, the, the authority, the double portion of the spirit of Elijah. Why? Because it's, it's the internal character that you have today that determines the external reach or influence you have tomorrow. And so I just want to encourage you guys, let's make this a church where you sit on the front rows. Maybe of the building, that's fine. But I want to encourage you, make this a church where you are on the front rows of what the Lord is doing among you of what the Lord is is doing among you. Be on the front row of faith, of speech, of conduct, of love, of purity. You know, there's a difference between a thermometer and a thermostat. Bit cheesy. But a thermometer takes the temperature and a thermostat sets the temperature. What if you were the thermostats of this church, setting the spiritual temperature, setting the example for the church to follow? Elisha's in the room. Are you living up to what you want to pass down? I'm nearly done here. I'm just going to finish with one uh, final story. It was uh, 1858. And in Boston, in the USA, there was a Sunday school teacher. We wouldn't call them that anymore, would we? Like a children's worker out here doing what these guys are are, are doing now. And um, this... uh, Sunday school teacher working with young people uh, began visiting one of the young people who'd got a job uh, in a local shoe shop. And the boy was working there as, as a clerk. And uh, this, this guy was called Kimball. And, and Kimball, through his faithful commitment, eventually had the privilege of leading this young lad to Jesus. The young man's name uh, was Dwight Lyman Moody. Some of you will be familiar with that name because that lad, D.L. Moody, grew up to become a powerful evangelist. And and some 21 years later, he found himself uh, preaching in London. And there was a local minister by the name of F.B. Mayer. 
And he went along to hear Moody preach. And he was profoundly moved and affected by what he'd heard. Years later, Mayer uh, found himself uh, in the States where a young student by the name of J. Wilbur Chapman became a Christian at one of Mayer's meetings. Now, Chapman uh, became heavily involved in the YMCA and during his time there met and discipled a baseball player by the name of Billy Sunday. Now, Billy Sunday became another evangelist and during one of his crusades in a small town in Charlotte uh, led a whole bunch of people to Jesus. And that following year, some of the people who became Christians at those Billy Sunday events, well, they organized another event and they invited the evangelist Mordecai Ham to come and speak. Ham was there for three weeks and he left feeling somewhat discouraged. Because only a handful, a small handful of people had responded to the gospel during his time there. But one of those people who responded to the gospel at that time was a teenage boy by the name of Billy Graham. Who would go on to lead literally millions of people all over the world to Jesus. Now... The point of this story is not about Billy Graham. The point of this story is about a Sunday school teacher by the name Kimball. A Sunday school teacher that until today you probably never heard of. Who quietly, faithfully, nearly 100 years earlier, committed to simply pass on what he carried to another young person. Just, just one boy. <laughs> just one life. And because Kimball did that, he changed the future for literally millions of people. You know, the greatest thing that you may do in the kingdom of God may not be something that you do, but rather someone that you raise. So how how do you change the world? How do you change the future? You pass down the mantle just one life at a time. And so, Encounter Church, this is my encouragement to all of us today, in every generation, young or old, boring or fun. <laughs> Are we living up to what we want to pass down? Can I invite you to stand with me as we pray? Maybe the band will join us as well guys before we sing why don't we just let's take a moment just to let that settle in our spirits let me invite you to uh, close your eyes just to focus your attention on God maybe open up your hands as you posture your body before God to say I'm here I'm present and Holy Spirit, we just ask that you would come and you would, Lord, anything of me, make it just fall away. But anything that you are speaking into our hearts and minds today, would you seal it in this moment? Let's just take a moment to wait.
Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for your patience with me. (laughs) I know that every day I fall short of the glory of God. But I'm so grateful for your grace. Lord, you forgive me over and over again. And Lord, so I pray today, Lord, in this place, we know there's no guilt, no shame, because we are set free by the blood of Jesus, and whom the Son has set free is free indeed. And yet, Lord, we pray that we would not leave the same, that you would call us up in you, that you would inspire us to live a life with you at the center, a life of courageous faith. And Lord God, in the simple, small ways, just like that Sunday school teacher, however old or young we are, that you would help us just to be faithful in setting an example and passing down the mantle, just one life at a time. Amen. And guys, just before we finish, as we were worshipping earlier, um, I felt that the Lord say that there's uh, somebody here and you have a little bit of fear or anxiety, you maybe not, wouldn't actually use that language, but maybe, let's say, trepidation about the future. There is a sense of uncertainty about your future. Um, And it's on your mind, and there's a sense of trepidation about that. And if that's you, I felt the Lord would say say to you is this, um, that the same God who marks out the heavens with the breadth of his hand, who holds the waters in the hollow of his hand upholds you with his righteous right hand so do not fear for I am with you do not be dismayed for I am your God I will strengthen you and help you and uphold you with my righteous right hand is the promise of God over your life today and specifically I felt the Lord invite you to worship because you know, you know, don't you, that when we're worshipping God, we're not telling him anything that he doesn't already know. We're aware, we're aware of that, aren't we? Like, he doesn't need us, like, to stroke his ego by singing songs. But when we worship, here's what happens. There's an old hymn, there's a line in an old hymn, and it says this. The things of the world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. What happens as we worship, as we, as we right-size God in our hearts and minds, and as we do that, we right-size our circumstances in our hearts and our minds. And you know, it's good, it's good to talk to God about your circumstances, but there's a moment here where some of you need to start talking to your circumstances about the size of your God. So as we worship God now, as we conclude with this final song, if that is you, I just want to encourage you to stand before God, not denying how you feel, not denying that fear or trepidation about what the future holds, but just reminding yourself that the same God who marks out the heavens with the breadth of his hand and who holds the waters in the hollow of his hand, he is the one who upholds you in his righteous right hand today.